Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar, and I'm here today with Mark Sharon. We're two of the co-authors of the Freedom Model for Addictions. We wrote it along with Stephen Slate. It's the culmination of 30 years of research and our personal experiences helping people to overcome their problems. We offer two ways to work directly with Stephen, Mark, and myself, and that's in person at our private retreat or via video conferencing like Skype or Zoom or FaceTime. Our books are available at thefreedommodel.org or on Amazon or one of the other online retailers. And if you have questions and you want to reach us, you can call us directly at 888-424-2626. That's 888-424-2626. Or send us an email at info at thefreedommodel.org. You can also follow us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. What we're going to do today for this podcast, we're actually going to do a a lesson uh, directly from our book, and we're going to talk about chapter eight, which is the addict alcoholic self-image. I'm going to read some quick excerpts from it, and then Mark is going to talk to me like he would a student at the retreat. And, um, and hopefully it will help some people, especially if you're struggling either to, to, to solve a substance use problem or you're struggling to leave like a 12 step program. Um, I think that, that this lesson will really help you to, to start to think differently about your problems and maybe how to overcome them. Let let me explain how, how this works at our retreat or, uh, try to imagine that you're, you're in a in a small room at our retreat where um, you know you're in a classroom setting and but it's nice and comfortable uh, because it, it's important to understand how this works what it would be like um, to, to give it a little context yep and um, Michelle is the student I'm the instructor I'm the, I'm the presenter I'm the person that's going to present the information to her now the way this works is I would have already given Michelle, the assignment, and the assignment is you read a chapter on your own, and you're provided um, a pen and a highlighter and a notebook and all the materials, and then I tell you uh, specifically, listen, go through the chapter, highlight the things you think are important, things that confuse you, things that you want to debate and critique, um, or you don't agree with, or things that really jumped out at you that you do agree with, or that you find are important to you, or that grab you, or whatever it might be. So basically, we want to facilitate facilitate um, you know conversation. So I'm not just lecturing because that that's not how people learn. Uh, their eyes glass over and, and uh, it becomes a pointless venture. So I want them invested in the process. I want the guests to to really feel like they're running the class almost and that I'm there just to clarify things and to put an exclamation point on the the points that they think are important. Okay. okay. All right, so chapter eight. This is the addict alcoholic self-image. And the, the first thing that I would highlight as a student would be this line, which is on the first page of the chapter. Unfortunately, some substance users start to think they've got a weakness or handicapped called an addiction. The more these substance users learn and believe the hype about addiction, the more helpless they feel. They transform from a fully capable person into a helpless person, which keeps them from implementing the very simple innate powers they have to change. As they become true believers in addiction, they're effectively hobbled by this destructive self-image. 
Okay, so I would ask Michelle, I'd say, Michelle, do you, did you feel that way when you were going to AA? Tell me a little bit about that. And I would say, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I felt that way before I went to AA, which is also in this chapter. It okay. talks about how um, how I identified it as an, as an addict long before I really started drinking or drug using problematically. Um, I was told from the age of 12 years old that if I ever touched alcohol or a drug that I'd become addicted. I was told I had an addictive personality, that I'd become addicted because it was in my genetics. And then I would ask you as the presenter, I would say, well, Michelle, do you, do you still feel that way today? Now you have to remember, Michelle, you're, you're a guest. And so. I did feel that way for a very long time. Um, even though I didn't buy, I, you know, I, and a lot of our guests do this. I didn't buy into the whole addiction disease thing. I watched my grandmother die of cancer. I know the difference between a real mm. disease and a, the pseudo disease. Right, right. Um, but I still felt completely helpless to change. Okay. And, uh, now obviously in the case of a real student, I would ask, you know, do you feel this way? Normally they would... They would respond the way Michelle just did, and then and then we would dig a little deeper and see uh, just how deep they are entrenched in this idea that they're that they're hopeless. Yeah, and powerless. Yeah, um, and they're not, of course. And I would make a point to say they're not over and over again, but they may not believe that yet because we're early in the book. Right, right. This is only chapter eight. Um, okay, what's the next part? The next part was, which is actually the very next paragraph because I like this um, analogy. For those of us who've escaped this destructive set of views, it's hard to watch. It's like seeing a man with fully functioning legs who's become convinced that he can't walk and now lives confined to a wheelchair. It's only his beliefs that keep him hobbled. Yeah. And so I would ask Michelle, I'd say, how did you feel hobbled by AA? What did it do? How did it stop you from performing in life, being happy in life? Um, how did it hobble you, this idea? Well, it really did. Um, I was told right from the beginning that I shouldn't do make any major changes in my life, so I put off going back to school. Um, I was told that if I went back to school, it would be too soon and I would do poorly. Um, I was told not to get involved in a relationship. I did anyways. Not most people do. <laughs> I'm, I'm you're, still, not gonna, you're not going to stop love. No, no. And, and, and you're still married, right? I'm still married right. to the same man that I wasn't supposed to be with who 13-stepped me, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Um, but I was, also, I was also told that I was a bad person, that I was selfish, that I was I wasn't allowed to be angry I wasn't allowed to truthfully it felt like I wasn't allowed to have fun and so actually right there I would probably stop the class and say do you still feel that way do you do you have you taken on that identity right um, obviously you Michelle had or over all that yes you know? yes but you knew I took it on for a long time oh yeah yeah so you you would answer yes mm -hmm. you know and we would and then I would work with you on on the reality that that the meeting structure teaches that for control. Right. It would teach you that so that the that you become a minion, you become fearful, you feel shamed, and then the focus becomes shame instead of you moving on. See, the very thing about treatment and recovery, and this is part of the lesson, the very thing about treatment and recovery is the whole model is predicated on the idea that you need treatment. And the whole... Uh, model of the freedom model is predicated on the idea that you need to be free. 
Right. We don't want you beholden to the model. The whole point of it is so that you can be free. And so I would spend a lot of time talking about the differences between soft tyranny of being controlled and the, um, the wonderful feelings of being free and moving on with your life without being in recovery or being stuck there. And at that point, we're already early in the, in the program and the people get pretty excited that they, they never heard such things. But what about, what about, you know, isn't there something, this is what I would have asked back then, isn't there something true to the idea that people, you know, are selfish and that that ultimately, you know, there's something wrong with me that makes me, you know, like being high more than I like being with my family? Oh, that's a great point. Well, first of all, you're going to go to a chapter called The Positive Drive Principle. It's going to talk about the fact that all human beings are motivated in a way selfishly right for their own mm-hmm. happiness and um, that uh, that saying it's selfish has a negative connotation right right um, but it's unavoidable that we are always driving towards the pursuits of happiness the question is how to be happy and probably it'd be a good idea not to hurt people but sometimes we do sometimes we make mistakes and the point is life is gray it's not black and white so um, part of getting older and getting wiser is making those mistakes and not making them again and and but you are motivated by the pursuit of happiness and that's unavoidable. So are you selfish? I guess. I guess we all are. We all are moving in a selfish direction. And that's not bad? No, that's not bad at all. It's hard-coded into us to do that. And even getting high is a pursuit of happiness. So we need to embrace that idea first and then ask, because this is more to the point of your question, um, would I be happier? Would I be happier to do it less or to abstain. And notice I didn't say I didn't say you shouldn't want to get high because that would be ridiculous because you do get high. Right. right. So there's no shame. I'm not shaming you. So I make a point that I'm not shaming you. And then I would say that um, you're allowed, if you want to get high, um, the main point is own it and say, right. this is what I like to do and let everybody in your sphere of influence know that that's what you've chosen and that they can act accordingly. And if everybody is above board, it may be sticky, it may be ugly, it may be dis, uh, you know, uncomfortable, um, but everybody should know what your intentions are. Now, what's interesting is that when people start talking honestly, they get rid of shame, they start saying, I want to get high, then suddenly it opens the door for better analysis because the shame is out of the way. If you get rid of the shame, what you end up doing is you have this clear path and you say, geez, I don't know if I like sticking a needle in my arm and chasing the high every day, having to go boost baby formula at the local Walmart. I I don't know if I really like doing all that. Maybe it would be easier to not do that because we've eliminated the shame out out of the equation. So you can do that. You can eliminate the shame. You can talk about these things openly in a classroom setting because I call it the no shame zone. It's a place where we get to say, I like getting high for these reasons, and now I want to analyze whether getting high less or abstaining would make me happier. Okay. The next thing I found was, it's hard to quantify in data exactly what changes when people see themselves as addicted but it's a general sense of defeat that creeps into their existence. Their spirit withers and fades and they accept as they accept their fate. 
yeah, well, um, that's where you are or a lot of the guests are when they get to us or somebody with private instruction or just a phone call we get. Um, most people feel, they feel addicted because they've been taught to feel that way. Right. So I would make a point that they're taught to feel a certain way. And that's in culture. That's, you know, it's the first time you, you watch a John Wayne movie and he goes through the saloon doors and, and he, he's scared. So what does he do? He takes three shots of whiskey before he has the gun battle. I mean, these, these ideas about the powers of, of, of addiction are, are start early. And so it doesn't surprise me that you'd feel this way. Yeah. Next one is one of the worst symptoms is that they go from simply wanting or liking intoxication to needing it. Well, that's, that's a belief, right? The idea of needing it is a belief. Even when you're trying to avoid withdrawal, you're still doing it based on what? The pursuit of happiness, which is right. I don't want to feel withdrawal. So it's not that you need it. It's that you define it as a need. Somebody along the path told you you needed it because if you don't, you'll, right. you'll feel the pain of withdrawal. That's one example. Or that you need it to get over your problems with your marriage. Or you need it for um, whatever it might be, to sleep. Um, I, I mean, we hear and to get rid of depression, to cure anxiety, to feel secure, to feel outgoing, to be better sexually. Um, I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons. Um, so we're taught all these things. It doesn't make them true, though. Yeah, I was actually told that I self-medicated because I was diagnosed with bipolar and that I used it for, um, well, the truth was that I used marijuana because it, 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 it brought me down and I used alcohol because it picked me up or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, which, which is so awful because it really does make you think you need it at that point. Well, it does. It, if, if it is a medicine for coping, <laughs> right. then you've just given it a tremendous amount of power. What's, what's interesting is, is, and this would be a part of the lesson, uh, drugs can only affect the body. They don't affect the human mind or the content of your thoughts. Right. They just slow down the processing power and speed of, or speed it up. Or speed it up as in the case of crystal meth or cocaine. So it's a speed issue of processing physically. And we get a physical buzz. But the interpretation of that buzz is a learned thing. That's why we have cultures that drink more than us as a culture. Right. And in part of the lesson here, I would digress into some cultures uh, drink more and have a lot less problems. And yeah. they don't feel the need for it. Right? And how can you have one culture behaving one way and a whole another culture behaving a different way? And with the same substance. With the same substance, pharmacologically affecting, you know, being converted into ethyl alcohol, acetaldehyde. It's all the same identical molecules doing the same thing to the physical body, and yet the interpretation is the opposite. Right. <laughs> and, and we would go through in different chapters uh, the research with double-blind studies and things like that that prove my point. But yeah. we would get into that yeah. in more detail. Research has shown that belief in the disease model of addiction increases binges and relapses. After treatment, people interpret all sorts of things as dangerous triggers that can cause them to use, and they walk around paranoid that they'll be triggered to fall off the wagon at any moment. Before you say anything, I actually asked my sponsor, um, I think I was sober like six months, and I asked her, I think after a meeting one night, because somebody had come back after they relapsed or whatever, and I went, what, what exactly is going to make me drink if I don't want to drink? 
and she couldn't answer me. Yeah, she couldn't. She couldn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because there is no such thing as a trigger-free life. No. <laughs> right? Because life, and this would definitely be something I would harp on in the class, because life is a shit storm. It so is. Right? There is suffering. There is trauma. There is pain. There is depression. There is anxiety, and these are all normal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's called being human. So what the treatment industry did was they made a foolproof plan to make sure that you always failed because they set the bar that you can't be in the presence of trauma, stress, anxiety, depression, um, and that you would always get high if you exhibited those things. So you had to have a trigger-free life. Well, guess who will create the trigger-free life? That would be treatment and the recovery society. Now, it's an empty promise because nobody can promise a stress-free, trigger-free life. So if and 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 i would describe that in detail obviously in the class and show that um treatment creates a scenario where you become dependent on the treatment model and it's your savior to save you from trauma and isolate you out of society and make you a very special person that is in need to be coddled emotionally and because if you don't you're going to need your medicine and self-medicate so it puts the drug up on a pedestal and it puts you way under the table as this subservient. You're either going to be subservient to treatment, which makes the trigger-free existence bubble, or you're going to be subservient to the alcohol or drugs which we've put on a pedestal. And what the freedom model does, it, it eliminates both of those and says, you're, you have free will. Choose. Yeah, Choose. figure out what you like, yes. what you want. Yes, there's, and, and we would talk a lot about the choices about um, be, you can decide not to be anxious. You can decide to change and not be depressed. If there was no answers to those issues, we would all be dead. Yeah. We would all die because life is such a shitstorm. There's so much stuff to be depressed about. My God, you know, if yeah. there was no answer for those things, if we couldn't change our mind, yeah. we would be doomed. So um, treatment wants you to believe you can't change your mind, and certainly they want you to believe that alcohol has been your solution um, and that you need them to not have that be the solution. Exactly. Okay. A common story heard in support meetings goes like this. You have to be on the lookout for triggers all the time. I was sober for 10 years, and then I went to a wedding. I stayed away from the bar, and everything was fine, but then the dessert was served. I ate it, and it tasted weird, and I found out it was tiramisu a cake that contains alcohol i started craving and couldn't control myself i went right over to that open bar and i started drinking the cake kicked kicked off relapse that lasted almost two years before i got back into recovery these stories tell the tale of an expectancy response which is a placebo effect learn from the recovery ideology right and and i would go into and i'm not going to get into it here because it's too long but i would get into the studies that uh, where they they took the prime the, dosing uh, experiments exactly yeah exactly, where they took people and I, I won't get into it. the prime dosing experiments and and we would go over that in detail and you would see through yeah. research that it's absolutely bunk yeah and in, in every study people who were given um, alcohol and they didn't know they had alcohol did not keep drinking people who were given a substance that was not alcohol but thought it was kept drinking oh so it, you're going to get into it now I am teacher. I have to because <laughs> it's so awesome it is they did one study where they took college students and they they gave, they both they gave both groups of people they set them up at a mock bar and they gave both groups of people 
substances that tasted identical to alcohol, like yeah. vodka, and they taped them. It's so difficult. It's so cringeworthy to watch <laughs> because because both one group had non-alcoholic, right, and got and didn't know, and the other group got actual alcohol. Both groups were drunk <laughs> and and hitting on each other, and it was embarrassing. And then they before they told them that the one group did not have alcohol. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> they take them in an interview as well, and they're saying, "I'm so drunk," and, and you're like, uh, "No." no and these not. are people who who were drinkers, and and so yeah, yeah. Well, it, okay, um, the same sort of expectancies are being set up now with opioid painkillers. Um, then it, there's a story about a man who um, I was never really a drug user other than a joint once in a while at a party, but then I injured my back loading a truck at work, and the doctor put me on painkillers. I was afraid and I even asked if they were addictive. I had friends who had gotten hooked on those pills, but the doctor told me I'd be fine. Then I started to feel weird when I didn't have my prescription for a day and I realized I was addicted. I started using more and more of them, going to different doctors to get them. Then I went to heroin when I couldn't get more pills. It's been five years of hell. This man believed the ongoing media hype about painkillers and as a result, he was effectively addicted to them even before the doctor had prescribed them and taken a single pill. Yeah, one of my, fa- my my most popular uh, YouTube videos is one where I talk about the largest control group we have is is for for a hundred years we've had hospitals filled with people that were put on morphine for various things for long periods of time in trauma accidents, and until heroin awareness came along, which creates the expectancy that you just described, um, heroin and uh, pain pill opiate awareness. Um, these people would be on large doses of heroin and then uh, they would be let go of the hospital with no detoxification protocols put in place. And so the people would leave. They would have three days of the flu because they thought they were at the hospital. They were in a sick place, so they got the flu. And then they moved on with their lives. And what's interesting is this wasn't just a few people. This was millions. Right. Millions of people had massive, massive three-day detoxification withdrawal symptoms and vomiting throwing up diarrhea chills they had no sweats. Idea that's what it was right they thought it was the flu so because it was framed as the flu to them uh, there was no addiction there was no addiction yet now we describe that same flu-like situation as an addiction as you are hooked and when you put those words on it the expectancy result starts to drive an entire narrative internally in the person until they believe that they are hooked and uh, so it's a belief-centered problem. Okay. She's okay. just going through the pages. <laughs> the way you see yourself, your self-image has powerful implications. And that's, I would go through, usually by this point, I would have the student talk to me about a lot of different areas of self-image um, and they would describe to me both the good and the bad self-images they carry with them, and we would have a long discussion about um, this one part of their self-image. But that, that's sort of a personal thing that I would go through with them. Recovery ideology compounds the problems of people with strong preferences for intoxication by teaching them to identify as helplessly addictive. 
well, we just described that in the in the uh, control group analogy. If you if you believe you're hopelessly or helplessly addicted, uh, you will feel that way and you will behave that way. Absolutely. And 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 if if Michelle was an actual student, I would ask how how do you define your addiction? You know, do you feel hopeless? Do you? And we would talk a lot about that and that she doesn't have to, that that can change and that she can move on from it and. Uh, yeah. Addiction, this is the last one. Addiction is a matter of perspective, not a state of being that compels you to drink or drug. Remember, you don't have addiction. Nobody does. What you have is a strong preference for substance use that you've learned to interpret as a compulsion. Yeah, and, and here we would wrap it up. We would come full circle back to you prefer this for reasons. And we would look at why do you like it? We would, re, we would go back into why do you like getting high? Why do you like your drug of choice? What are the benefits of that drug? And do you think now with this knowledge from just this chapter that you could make a change and you would be happy? Would you be happier if you made the change to moderate or abstain? Would you be happier? And, and the people start to see that they've been living a charade. And I would, I would summarize the charade in this chapter um, and say, you know, how you view yourself and your relationship with alcohol and or drugs um, is how you're going to drink and drug. Right. And, uh, yeah, so that's what we would talk about. So that is the lesson for today. That is the addict alcoholic self-image. Um, it's something that you don't have to live with forever. Um, you can shed it at any point in time if you're in your person in recovery or if you're a person that's in and out of uh, AA or NA or one of the other groups and you're struggling with whatever the behavior is um, you definitely identifying yourself by that behavior is problematic yeah I mean the last thing you want to do is say hi my name is Mark and I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug God. addict. That Awful. is that is a surefire way to feel addicted, become addicted, right? Where you take on that identity because addiction is a, is a subjective thing. And right. so you're you're literally creating it. You're creating a dependence on NA and AA and the treatment complex. That's why you do that. Think about it logically. There's no logical reason to be abstinent or moderate or or even a heavy drinker and say you're addicted. Does it's anybody who quit smoking call themselves a smoker? Right. Hi, my name is Mark and I'm a smoker. But you haven't smoked in 20 years. <laughs> right. But I, 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 I still I, a smoker. I, Deep down, I'm still a smoking I, addict. I, I, could <laughs> I could any minute. I mean, I, I, you know, and, and you know what? I find ironic is I see these commercials about smoking is an addiction. Oh, it's terrible. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's driving a narrative that is absolute bullshit. Yeah. It's, like you go into a room of 20, 50 year olds and probably at least half of them are had quit smoking. It's the most quit drug in the nation. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most quit drug in the nation. Uh, I mean, it's just, but nobody walks into a room and says, I'm a smoker. If they don't smoke anymore, 
it makes no or, sense. Or any habit. We, you yeah. Know, I mean, my God, the biggest habit you have when you're a teenager is riding a bicycle before you get your license. Would you say, hi, I'm Mark, and I'm a bicycle rider? I mean, <laughs> I, mean, it's, I rode every day. Yeah. I, you haven't in like 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well, I did every day when I was a teenager. And I could any minute. <laughs> to break into bike riding. <laughs> All right. That's our, that's our podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um... We, we hope that you're all doing well out there. If you or someone you know is seeking help, you can reach us at 888-424-2626 or through our websites at thefreedommodel.org and soberforever.net. And don't forget, we also are willing to help people who know someone. If you love someone who's struggling with addiction, with substance use, with, um, with any kind of addiction, we have the Freedom Model for the family that's also available on those sites. And I'm available to talk to you anytime at that number. From everyone here at the St. Jude Retreats and the Freedom Model, we wish you well. Until next time. Bye. Take care.